you, we can do nothing. As the song so aptly says, we need you every hour. And we ask that you would continue to be with us as we go forth in this worship. That the things that would be said and done would be to your honor and to your praise and to the edifying of the saints. We live in a world of confusion. Confusion on many, many different levels. There are many people that believe they're right and have opposing views. But all we know as an individual is to Proclaim what we believe thy word to teach. And yet, at the same time, there are many, many mysteries within your word. There are many things that we believe that we cannot even comprehend or understand. And one of the first things that we find in your word is that you created everything out of nothing. There's no way we can comprehend that. There's no way we could dissect that as we mount an insect on the examining table or a mechanic may take apart an automobile to see how it is made and put it back together. Nevertheless, thy word is true. We do pray that you would be with those that rule over us, that we might be blessed to ever lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We know that you set up kings and you take down kings. You even put the basis of men in authority. We know that the wrath of man praises you and the remainder you restrain. And yet in our own hearts and minds, sometimes we have difficulty with the things that are going on about us. Help us to have the right spirit and the right understanding and to live in a way that is honoring and pleasing unto you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In our study of the book of Galatians, we come now to chapter 4. But I'm going to read a part of an article that I came across this week. And obviously I cannot read all of it because there's at least 11 pages uh, and 15 pages with all the documentation and everything. 
But it is all apropos to what we are studying in the book of Galatians. The writer and uh, is a, a man that is of the Reformed faith. So what I'm going to be saying is not a, a Baptist coming from a Baptist perspective and uh, setting up a straw man against a Reformed ideology and perspective. Uh, this Reformed man has an accurate description of the issue at hand. And so for that reason, uh, just to give you some of his credentials, it's an article on uh, by uh, actually R. Scott Clark. It's an, uh, it says one important difference between Reformed and some particular Baptist. Now particular Baptist in England are what primitive Baptists are in America, essentially. So just uh, there may be some discrepancies at various points, but that's basically the same. And to show that uh, this man, uh, from that he is a from a, from coming from a re reformed perspective, he was educated at the he got his B.A. at the University of Nebraska. He got his Master of Divinity at Westminster Seminary in California. He got his Doctors of Philosophy at St. Anne's College, Oxford University. And he was a, a minister in the Reformed Church in the United States from 1988 to 98 for 10 years. And he has been a minister in the United Reformed Churches of North America since 98. He has taught church history and historical theology since 1995 at Wheaton College and at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi and Concordia University, Irvine and Westminster Seminary in California. So uh, he's well reformed. He knows from where he's standing. Now, reading from this article that he posted, actually it was posted back in March of 2020, he said, In reading particular Baptist sources from the classical period of particular Baptist theology, piety, and practice from modern proponents of that tradition, I have become more deeply impressed with how superficial my understanding was of how and how great the differences are in some important respects. Until a few years ago, my impression was that the differences between us were mainly a matter of eschatology, that's of the last things, and ecclesiology. That particular Baptist consequently cannot admit infants to the external administration of the covenant of grace until they have 
what the administration offers. These are real differences, but the differences run more deeply. In other words, he's saying which a lot of people are saying today that, well, you know, we're all Calvinists. We all believe the same thing. The only difference is a few things about baptism and the Lord's Supper and maybe uh, church politics and so on. But there's more to it than that. He goes on and says, <clears throat> in, the writing, uh, in writing that series of how compiled into one piece, in other words, he's talking about another uh, writing that he did, talking about the 1689 London Confession, that it was about 15,000 words. But anyway, he said, in writing that series, now, you, you, you remember here, you know what the 1689 London Confession of Faith is, don't you? That's what we subscribe to, which is the same as the Philadelphia uh, Confession of Faith of 1742, same as the Kahuki Declaration and their faith in 1769. And essentially the same as what the Primitive Baptists uh, adopted in 1900 in Fulton, Kentucky, just 10 miles from where I grew up. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, he said in writing that series, that is about the 1689, I realized more clearly that for some in the uh, particular, particular Baptist tradition, the types and shadows witness to or reveal the coming redemption which the Old Testament believers have only proliptically. You remember when we were studying some in Revelation, we talked about some proliptic prophecies. In other words, that's looking at something in the future as if it's in the present. And we gave Romans uh, 8.30 when it talks about being justified being glorified we haven't been glorified yet but the writer's looking at it as if we already have been in the present but it's, that's what a proliptic statement is it's it's in by anticipation <clears throat> and so the old testament for the particular baptist the old testament was looking at christ not as actually present in redemption, but in anticipation of it in redemption. And that's, so anyway, he goes on to say, by contrast, in the Reformed view, and he has many, many examples which I will not read. He quotes Calvin, he quotes uh, 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 a student of Philip Melanchthon, and Philip Melanchthon was uh, Luther's uh, uh, theologian, really, and quotes uh, Calvin and some others. But he said, by contrast, the Reformed view, in the Reformed view, the Christ and His benefits, the substance of the covenant of grace, are in with and under 
the types and shadows. What he's saying is that circumcision, Christ was in circumcision, just like baptism and the Lord's Supper, Christ is in the New Testament economy. From there, in other words, well, you'll see where we're going to get to in a minute. For the particular Baptist, Christ and the covenant of grace cannot be in with or under the types because that could only be true in the new covenant. For the particular Baptist, there is one covenant of grace with one administration, the new covenant. In conversations with some who are working through these issues, it has also become clear to me that the Reformed and particular Baptist can use the same language or similar language and yet mean different things by it. Now that's a very important statement. You know, it's kind of like the word heaven. You know, when you sing, say something about heaven or mention heaven, you may be talking about heaven meaning one thing and somebody else may be thinking of something else. Most people, when they think about heaven, they think about after death, they're going to be floating around up in the air somewhere. You know that I preach that after we're resurrected, we're going to be living on a new earth in a new heaven. And when I think about heaven, that's what I think about. And I normally try to distinguish and say glory world instead of heaven because there are so many uh, vague ideas and opinions about what heaven is. After some discussion, he further goes on and he says, in short, after he had given several different examples from writings of uh, mainly Nehemiah Cox of a particular Baptist, and but then some of the reformers, but he said, uh, in short, when we, that is the reformers, say communication, we mean communion. When the particular Baptists say communication, they seem to mean the transmission of information. So here is a difference between particular Baptists and the reformed. For the particular Baptist, the Old Testament covenants are not the covenant of grace as much as they are witnesses to the covenant of grace. In other words, when we were, we've been talking about Abraham and the promises given to Abraham and so on and so forth, well, those were witnesses of the true covenant of grace, the New Testament covenant. For the reformer, 
the sacrifice of Isaac was a shadow and an instrument of giving divine life. And we're going to read that, which he says that shortly. For the Reformed, the Old Testament covenants are earthly, historical, real, external administrations of the one covenant of grace through types and shadows. Through those administrations, God the Spirit gave more than external, typical, topological blessings. God the Spirit was sovereignly operating within His people through the sacrifices, through the ceremonies, through the prophetic word, to bring the elect to new life and to true faith in Jesus the Messiah. So they were saying the Old Testament sacrifices, even circumcision, and all, all of those things were used by God to give new life to the elect. For the reformed, the Old Testament covenant were more than witnesses to and revelations of the covenant of grace. They were administrations of the covenant of grace. And by passing uh, quotes from different people, He even go. I will do this because a lot of people and a lot of Baptists also a lot of times always quoting Augustine, and for some people say it should be Augustine, and depending on. Uh, but anyway, he says August uh, Augustine or Augustine says quote the sacraments of the Old and New Testament differ in their signs, but agree in the things signified. The fathers all ate the same spiritual meat. The earthly meat, however, which they ate, was different from that which we eat. They ate manna. We do not. In other words, we would eat the bread at the Lord's Supper and other things. But the spiritual meat which they did eat is the same as that which we eat. That's quoting Augustine. And the writer here goes on and says, Without Christ, who is the thing signified in the sacrament. See, they say all of those, all of those sacrifices and everything were sacraments. If you remember when we preached on that somewhat sacraments, they... They maintained as a mystery of how God gives life and, and so on. And I'm just highlighting without going into details, which if I did that, it would be several messages. Again, without Christ, who is the thing signified in the sacraments of both testaments, 
No one ever has been saved or can be saved. It follows, therefore, that the fathers who lived under the Old Testament had the same communion with Christ we also have, and that is, and that this was signified no less to them by the word and sacraments than is now to us under the new covenant. Here's his conclusion. When the particular Baptists speak of the benefit of Christ being communicated, it seems as if they mean that a future reality was revealed to the Old Testament saints, which they anticipated, but which was not actually present for them. When the Westminster divines confessed that the benefits of Christ were communicated, however, they meant something rather different. They mean that the substance of the covenant was actually present in, with, and under, sounds like Luther with the Lord's Supper, but anyway, actually present in, with and under the types and shadows, and that we share with our Old Testament brothers and sisters the same covenant of grace and the same substance of that covenant, Christ. Now, I want to look at a few passages of scripture here first of all in Hebrews chapter 8 while you're turning there I will say this I recently saw a one of our ministers who had been at one of these reform conferences not of this vein but of another group and was bragging on uh, one of their ministers at that conference by the name of, and I'll call the name, John Piper, who maintains that God has two different wills and also maintains that there is, in one way, man is saved by works. And uh, I can document that if need be. Actually, uh, the writer that I'm reading here uh, takes Piper to task on some of that on his blog site. But let's hear what the Scriptures have to say about the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant. Just a couple of three Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 6. But now hath he obtained, that is Christ, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. One covenant is not as good as the other. 
wouldn't you say? One's a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. In other words, the covenant of grace is not uh, is one covenant, but it's not a part of the Old Testament covenant or covenants. The Old Testament covenants, they were only types of it. They only testified of it. They were not part of it. And by the way, the idea of a universal invisible church comes in under this reformed teaching. But I don't have time to go into that. Verse 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He didn't say I'm going to extend the old covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant that's established on better promises. A second covenant that is separate from the first. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. If I didn't have anything else, that one passage alone would tell me there's two different covenants. That the New Testament, the New Covenant is not an extension of the Old. And we could give many more passages. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, starting in verse 1, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things which can, uh, things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices 
There is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. That should settle the fact that the Old Testament covenants could not take away sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, but blood of bulls and goats didn't do anything. So there's many today that profess to be Baptist that are saying that, well, there's nothing more, there's, uh, there's really not that much difference between us and the Reformers when there is more difference than people want to realize. And like I said, it's being infiltrated in among us. And more and more, uh, I hear some of our younger ministers talking more like Reformers than they are Baptists. That bothers me. It's a whole different, a whole different theology. Uh, the writer here quoted Charles Hodge, but uh, he didn't quote this from Hodge. I'm quoting this out of Volume Three of Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology, and if my memory serves me correctly. I think it's on page 500, where Charles Hodge said, Do let the little children come unto us, talking about they have been sprinkled as little children, do let them come unto us, even if they choose afterward to remove their names from the book of life. Now that's, uh, that's where Charles Hodge was coming from. You say, well, how can a man that believes in election and, and, and all of that and redemption, the uh, penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, say such a thing? It's because of their view of the covenant. It's because of their view of the covenant. And when they talk about the covenant, they're not talking about what we're talking about. And when they talk about Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, they're not talking about what we're talking about. Abraham was talking about that in a type. But they say that that was in reality. You remember I read that it said that in those types and shadows and ceremonies that the elect people of God are given divine life. And brought to faith through those sacrifices. And why? Because the new covenant, I mean, those covenants in the Old Testament are merely part of the new covenant instead of types of the new covenant. You say, well, you're splitting hairs. It's a necessary split. It's a necessary split. <clears throat> and like I said, when the Reformers, when the Catholics were challenging the Reformers that they did not have a right to start a new, a new quote, church, end of quote, they said, well, the visible church is not important. It's an invisible church. 
And so they followed from that line of thinking. But as you know that I am of the school of William Tyndall, and every place in the New Testament, the Greek word ekklesia in his English translation was translated congregation. And probably would have been in the King James Version if King James had not given a rule against it. So, our study in Galatians is quite apropos to what I've just read. And I hope that in me talking about that we are children of Abraham, if we have the same faith of Abraham, that I do not mislead you to think that the Abrahamic covenant or the Noah, Noah, Noah covenant of Noah, <laughs> the covenant with David, I mean, in one place, I, I didn't read that in the article, they say that the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai, all of those covenants, they were used, they were in, with, and under the shadows. They were in, with, and under. In other words, they were part of the covenant of grace. And like I said, it, it really concerns me that some of our younger ministers are not seeing the difference. And are being, and our con some of our congregations are being swept, uh, being brought into reform theology rather than Baptist theology. Now, <clears throat> having said that, I don't hate the reformers. I read a lot of their books and I get a lot of good things. But you need to know from where they're coming. You need to know what their theology is and make that distinction. Well, Galatians chapter 4. I didn't know how long that would take. But I did believe that it was needful and necessary, especially for those out there in the internet world that may be listening to them. I don't want them to get the wrong idea uh, of some of the things that I may not make clear as we have been going through uh, the book of Galatians. I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 4, though I do not believe we'll get through that. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differ, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, 
praying, Abba, Father. Now, when we, I will say this, when we get to adoption, uh, we'll, uh, we'll tarry there for a while because of the importance of that subject. Now, I remind you again that in the original manuscripts, there were no chapters and verses, and, but we're trying to follow that just for convenience sake. But uh, chapter 4 is a continuation of what has gone before in the first three chapters. But in particularly in chapter 3, it was talking about the, the schoolmaster and, and so on and so forth. And that uh, comes right into what he was talking is talking about here in chapter 4. In previous chapters, kind of give a resume, a, a review, I mean, of the what we've studied so far. And it's not necessarily in the order that we've studied in each chapter. But as the death of Christ, we saw in chapter 1 and verse 3, that the death of Christ delivers us more than just from hell. It delivers us from this present evil world. God's children that have been regenerated do not live like the world. They do not live like the world. They may look like the world for a period of time, but a short period of time, but their overall life as a Christian is that of looking like a Christian. I hate to bring it up so many times, but if you looked at David when he committed, committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba and had one of his favorite men murdered, you wouldn't think David had been a, a child of grace at that time. But his overall life was certainly not that way. Just reading the book of Psalms uh, will tell you that uh, in and of itself. But Galatians 1.3 said that Christ redeemed us from this present evil world. And I remind you there that the word world is age. Also in chapter 1, Paul emphasizes there's, that there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. There's not two gospels. And what we have been reading about so far in our message has to do with are we Baptists preaching the true gospel or are the reformers? You say, well, does that mean all the, the reformers not saved? No, I'm not saying that. wouldn't say that at all. I wouldn't say all Catholics are not saved. I don't know who is and who's not saved. Only God knows that. But we're, not, we're talking about what we believe and how and how it's going to affect how we live. Paul 
contended for and defended the gospel in so much that when Peter was led astray, Paul confronted him face to face. Paul, Paul confronted him face to face. He wasn't, uh, he didn't have a campaign to uh, put Peter down. That wasn't Paul's motive. It wasn't a motive to expose Peter to be some bad man, but it was in order to make sure the Galatians were not led astray into Judaizing, the Judaizers and Judaism and that you had to, keep the, had to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. We also have pointed out that law works and circumcision does not do anything. Excuse me. I didn't plug the battery in. I phone into the... Be losing Sister Sharon here in a minute. <laughs> so... We find here that law works and, and works of the law and circumcision, all of that, that has nothing to do with our justification. Our justification is by the blood and work of Christ. But you don't throw the law out. The law is still good. It shows us how we're to live and how we're to live in this world. But as far as our justification, it has nothing to do with it. Not only the Old Testament law service, but laws that we may come up with. You know, several years ago, uh, I read ten chapters a day in the Bible. Well, I could have gotten to the point to say, well, if you're not reading as much as I am, you're just not as spiritual as I am. That's a bunch of hogwash. That's a bunch of hogwash. Some men that were working long hours, they didn't have time to read ten chapters in the Bible a day. And things of that nature. And we have to cultivate sometimes our times of devotion around uh, where we are providentially in our lives. But because a person prays so much or fasts so much or memorizes so much, doesn't necessarily make them a, a better Christian than someone else. And it's easy to fall into that trap. To be around a strong brother or sister in the Lord and maybe they have a, a, a real strong prayer life and you think, well, I need, to, I need to be praying as much as they do. Well, I tell you this much, a, a young woman with several children cannot pray as much as a, 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 a widow woman. A widow woman has far more time to, and more hours to pray than a woman trying to juggle a household of children. She just can't do it. Not in, not in the same way. And so you need to realize that. <clears throat> so law has nothing to do with our justification. Not only the Old Testament law or any law that you come up with for yourself. And if you've, if you've made a ruling that you want to live by, then uh, that's good. If you want to read 10 chapters or 20 chapters, 
or three chapters or one chapter, whatever, whatever you deem that God would have you to read. Uh, I would not be your uh, police on that. Justification is by the blood of Christ. And we've also pointed out several times, which is it, it is essential that we continue to point out that it's talking about the Old Testament versus the New Testament. That is, law versus grace, works versus grace, uh, uh, and, and that faith, justification by faith, justification by blood, justification by grace, justification by Christ, is all saying the same thing. It's all being justified by the finished work of Christ. Before faith came, as we saw in chapter 3, it's talking about before the New Testament age came. And you have two different economies that's being talked about throughout. <clears throat> Faith does not justify per se. But, great, but faith does receive experimentally the justification that was wrought out by Christ. And we must make that distinction. It is an important distinction to be made. I hear some professed grace preachers preach, and if I were to put their language up against an Armenian discourse, I would be it would be easy to think they're saying the same thing, which they may not mean the same thing. And so we need to make these distinctions clear. We also saw that uh, the, the, when the just live by faith, <clears throat> it is just simply walking in obedience to the Scriptures. You don't have to sit around and try to dream up and, and uh, think and pray and try to figure out, well, am I walking by faith or am I not walking by faith? Are you walking according to the Word of God? If so, you're walking by faith. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, how did I know that I love the Lord? Am I walking in obedience to the Word of God? You say, well, I don't keep the commandments perfectly. Nobody does. But it's your tenor of life and your desire to live in obedience to the Word of God. See, sometimes we preachers in trying to emphasize points if we're not careful, we make this thing far more complicated than what it is. The complication is not in the understanding as much as it is in working it out and living it. One thing to say to walk by faith, sometimes walking by faith is not an easy thing, particularly if you're being persecuted particularly if you're being persecuted. Because if you're being persecuted and you're a conscientious Christian, many times you think, well, am I being persecuted for the cause of Christ or is it my own stupidity? And I wrestle with that all the time. 
And but anyway, and I think every other child of grace does too. Then we saw that the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law is to manifest our sinfulness. And the, and the whole overall law economy was to bring us to the time when Christ would come. And the law was our schoolmaster, in other words, not our school teacher, but the servant to bring us to the teacher. And then we saw that baptism is an evidence of salvation. Baptism does not produce salvation. It's not a means of salvation. It's not an aid to salvation. It's only a proof of salvation. But yet a very necessary proof because we showed that every New Testament believer except the thief on the cross and John the Baptist were baptized. The reason John wasn't baptized is because God ordained him to be the one to start it. And so he said, I need to be. But Christ said, Becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And we saw the baptism as a figure, so they fulfilled righteousness in a figure, in a picture. They didn't really fulfill righteousness. Uh, Christ did that in his person and work, but they did it in a picture. And then we saw that all believers stand on the same footing that is in Christ. But that every believer standing on the same footing does not do away with uh, authority in everyday life. In other words, we are subject to the powers that be. They are over us. We're not equal to the powers that be. They are over us. Just like parents are over their children and children are to submit to their parents. The wife is to submit to her husband and, and so on. And we see all of that. So even though the wife and the husband may be the same, aren't standing on the same footing in the person and work of Christ, it doesn't give her the right to say, well, I'm going to do whatever I want to, whatever you, whatever you say. I'm just as good as you are. Well, she might be better than he is as far as her character. But she's not above him in her rank. And Scripture proves that. And so we saw all of that last Lord's Day. Now, as a summary and a review of everything, now we're just about ready to stop, <laughs> to start on uh, chapter 1. And so... I'll just cut it short and we'll stop here and then Lord willing come back this afternoon with chapter 1. I hope I haven't rambled too much and I hope I haven't added to the confusion because I, I really understand that trying to comprehend some of these distinctions are not easy. They're not easy, but they're essential. And they're vital. And it will lead to your thinking and to what you think.
for example, when you come to the Lord's Supper, you may try to think, well, am I being spiritual enough? Am I getting out of the Lord's Supper? Am I getting that mysterious blessing out of the Lord's Supper that I should be getting? I wrestled with that in my younger years as a Christian. What's the Lord's Supper for? For you to remember Christ. That's it. God may bless your cup to overflow to where you would be shedding tears of joy or of sorrow. And the person sitting next to you may be delighting in another way as the Lord would bless it to their souls. Personally, I don't ever think I have gotten out of the Lord's Supper what I ought to get out of it. But then at the same time, what should I get out of it? I should remember Christ. I should remember that He shed His blood and His body. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. And if I've done that, I've done what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures do not talk about how much emotions that you are to experience And you cannot measure how much emotions you think you should experience in your service to Christ. But you can know whether whether your lifestyle is living in obedience to the Word of God. You can know that. And that's what you're to trust in. Well, I'll hush. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You and ask that You would bless us as we endeavor to stand for truth. That we always do it with the right spirit. We know that our standing before you is in Christ or we do not have anything. And we know that life is given to us by thy Holy Spirit immediately. However you want to do that, that's left up to you. No man can give spiritual life to another. And our salvation is totally in Christ. We sin enough every day to be sent to the lake of fire a thousand times, if not more. We may not have overt outward sins, but our sins of the mind, our indifference, the patronizing of our flesh, 
All these other things are just as detrimental as far as our standing with you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your great mercies and grace as given to us in Christ Jesus. Yea, even before the world was. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.